Matthew 5, 1-12. Now, when Jesus saw these crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Psalm 69, 6-7 Lord, the Lord Almighty, may those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me. God of Israel, may those who seek you not be put to shame because of me. For I endure scorn for your sake, and shame covers my face. 1 Peter 2, 13-16 Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as a supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Matthew five ten to 11 Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. This is the word of the Lord. Just at the beginning of last month, Julia's brother and family came to visit us for the first time here in D.C. So we decided, you know, the usual touristy thing, and to take them on a tour of the National Mall. I took them to Union Station, where we hopped onto a circulator bus. And when we got on, we found that it was almost completely empty, except for two women sitting next to the rear exit doors. So we all settled in, you know, four kids, three adults, and making a, a clamor as we began pointing out the sights as we passed them. We sat right in front of these two women, but partway through the, 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 the ride, I turned around and noticed that they had moved. They'd moved to the back of the bus. Now, I totally get it, you know, when a whole huddle of children hop onto a bus and they're loud, maybe that's a good reason to move. But this was also just the beginning of the coronavirus thing. I thought to myself, hmm, could it be that they had moved simply because we looked like we were Asian? Now, it's not something I, know I often have to deal with regularly. I know others have, have to face uh, exclusion more overtly because of their skin color or because of the way they look. Now, but I can't ignore the consciousness of who I am and how, how I'm perceived as a person of color. Am I being seen or treated differently simply because of the way I look? Now, no one looks to be mistreated or, or insulted or persecuted, right? In fact, most of us do our darndest to, to not attract any attention so that doesn't happen. But as we come to this final beatitude, Jesus makes this very, very confounding pronouncement. He says, blessed are the 
those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I can't say that I was persecuted or outrightly insulted. It was just a thought that had passed. But the actions enough in that, in that moment were, made, uh, were enough to make me question what was going on. Yet here, Jesus says that God's people are to be congratulated. They're to be celebrated when they're persecuted. What's the deal with that? This is perhaps one of the most confounding pronouncements of all the Beatitudes that we've come across. I think if we look at the list, we could probably find some redeeming quality in the other Beatitudes. We can at least some, see some character-forming aspect of being poor in spirit, or of being meek, or of being merciful, or hungering and thirsting for righteousness and justice. We could envision the blessing of being peacemakers, but blessing in persecution? Really? Being insulted and reviled? I see no upside in any of those things. Do you? Of all the things that Jesus could have ended this list of Beatitudes with, why does Jesus end with this pronouncement of this kind of blessing? So we're going to unpack this in, in the following way. The nature of persecution, the reason for persecution, and how our persecution is subversively inclusive. This reason, uh, the nature, the reason, and the subversive inclusion of this kind of persecution. Jesus bookends these Beatitudes with the same fruit. He says those who are poor in spirit and those who are persecuted for righteousness, they both receive the assurance of belonging in the kingdom of God. Now, at initial glance, it would seem that those who live out these Beatitudes find that they will be included in God's kingdom. Upon closer reading, though, and we find that these Beatitudes actually reinforce how the Beatitudes are not the requirements of getting into God's kingdom, but they are a description of what people who are already in God's kingdom look like. Because if it were the former, because if it were just a requirement for getting into God's kingdom, then what Jesus would be inferring is that torture and murder are required, and martyrdom are required to be in God's kingdom. I don't think that's what he's saying, though. This eighth beatitude confirms that these pronouncements of Jesus aren't just ethical demands for personal behavior. Because if it were so, he's also suggesting that it's good for disciples of Jesus to seek out persecution in order to gain blessings. Jesus is saying neither of these. Jesus' followers were being persecuted for their commitments to the ways of Jesus rather than to the moral demands of the religious leaders of the time. The persecution has something to do with their inclusion in God's kingdom. So what does this persecution look like in our day? Maybe it's helpful to define what it's not. Jesus isn't saying blessed are those who are persecuted because they're being objectionable or non-conforming or contrarian. Now that's something that Americans find very natural, right? It's embedded in our, the founding of our country. We don't want to be told who we are and what we can do. And we will defend our rights and our freedoms even to our death. But sometimes our rights and freedoms as individuals impinge on the wider benefit of the community. So Jesus isn't saying about blessed are those who are persecuted because they're just acting differently and pushing against authority. Neither is Jesus saying blessed are those who are persecuted as Christians because they're seriously lacking wisdom or acting in foolish ways 
and being unwise in what they regard as their testimony. There are Christians who insist on a particular kind of worship that says that they are good Christians, or a particular lifestyle or cultural value that has been elevated above the demands of the gospel of Jesus. There are some who tie their faith with this belief that you don't have to get vaccinated, and they're suspicious of any authority outside of their circle of influence. But much of this is often foolishness. Jesus, uh, the Apostle Peter said to the church in First uh, Peter, says, if you, actually, this is the wrong uh, text. It was First Peter 2, not ch- uh, chapter 4. Um, if you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal, or even as a meddler. However, however, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Peter here lists meddlers, or busybodies who are involved in other people's matters, and he places that on equal prohibition as murderers and evildoers and thieves. So consider that. Jesus is also not referring to suffering persecution because of religious and political reasons. There are people who are imprisoned, who are persecuted publicly as Christians, but who also hold political views. We need to cautiously distinguish between why they are treated the way they are. This beatitude is not about suffering for our, uh, this beatitude is about suffering for our spiritual convictions, not our political and cultural convictions of those people who happen to be Christian. This also helps us in our particular political climate. As self-proclaimed Christians who might hold ideas that seem contrary to what you might view as values of the kingdom. They claim persecution for religious beliefs, when in fact the pushback is often due to their political or cultural convictions. Lastly, Jesus is also not saying blessed are those that are persecuted for being good and noble, good people of noble character. There are people who make great sacrifices for a good cause. They give up careers or prospects. They give up health, wealth, and perhaps even their lives. And the world is inclined to make great heroes of them. But that isn't necessarily righteousness. When people are celebrated as great Christians, we must question whether it is because they are practicing their Christian faith or whether they're just being people of good and noble character. Sometimes that overlaps. But when we see a person who suffers for doing good and noble deeds, I think there's a part of us that says, I'd like to be that kind of person. If it came down to it, I really think I could be that kind of person. But when we think this, we make great assumptions about our capacity for a noble character. Instead, this beatitude is pronounced as comfort for those who suffer persecution undeservedly for identifying with Christ. Suffering for our foolishness, suffering for our pride, or our sin can be expected. But in this pronouncement, Jesus is comforting those who suffer because of standing for what is right in God's kingdom. Jesus is assuring those who suffer for being righteous, for those who practice righteousness, for being like the Lord Jesus Christ. You may recall from our message from the fourth beatitude, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, Righteousness is understood as right relationship. Those who hunger for a right relationship with Jesus, hunger for a right relationship with others and for the world to the, with the world around them, 
those who seek to make peace with themselves, seek peace with those around him and in our world may find themselves persecuted. Those who are like Jesus will always be persecuted. In fact, Jesus repeats this word three times over in just these three verses of the final beatitude. He moves from those general those in verse 10, blessed are those, to blessed are you when people revile, insult you. They would be expected to be, they would expect to be persecuted, insulted, and reviled. Not because of their political and cultural views, or because they were living really good lives. But Jesus says, quote, because of me, in verse 11. Jesus reminds his disciples again in John 15, towards the end of his ministry, just before he goes to the cross in his final meal with them. He says in John 15, verse 18 and 20, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. It's what Paul says to his protege Timothy in 2 Timothy 3. He says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Again, the Apostle Peter tells the early church, if you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Do you see a pattern here? Over and over again. Persecution, it could be physical or verbal or maybe even both. Jesus' followers, the kind of, for Jesus' followers, the kind of persecution points to the way that they identified with Jesus. And it's not always just by non-Christians, but by the religious leaders of their time. The religious leaders hounded the crowds and excluded them from their fellowship, anyone who did not meet up to their particular standards of righteousness. But sadly, and ironically, the religious leaders were persecuting in the name of their righteousness, the very people who are standing for true righteousness. So what's this all saying? There's this old order of living life without God in control and without organizing around God. And when we do things like that, it could not and would not be able to handle Jesus, the master. So this old order shouldn't be able to handle the master's followers. The old order could not tolerate this righteous one. So they will not be able to tolerate those who follow the righteous one and reflect his righteousness. John Huss is a pre-Reformation martyr who lived between the Black Death Plague in 1348 and Joan of Arc's death in 1431. He joined the priesthood, not because of any particular spiritual calling, but because he wanted to escape poverty. And back then, pastors and priests would be paid well. After uh, training for ministry, he began to preach at Prague's Bethlehem Chapel in Czechoslovakia. And it was during this time of preaching God's word that he found God's word began to preach to him. Through the influence of Bible translator John Wycliffe, he discovered the reality of the Bible that he was preaching from. As he became more convinced about the authority of scripture, he began to speak out against the abuses of the Catholic Church and began a mission to reform the church. And eventually he was invited to Rome to explain his ideas to the leaders there. But it was a sham setup. Instead of providing a forum for him to speak, the council leaders demanded that he recant before them. 
But when he refused, he was imprisoned. He was invited to go back to the council one last time where he was stripped of his priestly garb and faced imminent execution for his beliefs. He refused one last chance to recant at the stake and where he prayed the following. Lord Jesus, it is for thee that I patiently endure this cruel death. I pray thee to have mercy on my enemies. And as he was being burned, he was heard reciting the Psalms. Huss's legacy lived on in his influence on Martin Luther, the founder of the Lutheran Church and the Protestant Reformation. Also upon the Wesley brothers, John and Charles Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, and the Moravian brethren, and even in the way that we take communion now in our church. At the time when most Catholics only received communion with bread, the Czech Catholics administered both bread and wine in remembrance of Christ. Now, we may not experience the degree of persecution like John Huss, but for those in God's kingdom, persecution is expected as part of the Christian experience because of the righteousness of Christ. Though people may be persecuted for many other reasons, the persecution that Jesus affirms here is persecution for identifying with him and because of their allegiance to the master Jesus. Now, this inclusion of God's people in God's kingdom is not based on what they have done, but upon what Christ has done for them. God's people respond in faith to the good news of Jesus and so find themselves included in the most enduring and most transformative community of all. And because of this radical inclusion based on the good news of Jesus, Christ's followers begin to live differently in this world, confronting injustices, pushing against evil, and shining light in the darkness. But how do we do this? It's easy to point out many of the inefficiencies and delays of our current pandemic response in America. But one thing that I have been impressed is by how Americans have stepped up with their can-do attitude. I see innovation and the flexibility of companies and individuals, printing 3D masks, you know, with their home 3D printers, or coming up with new ways to uh, make, ventila- make ventilators work for the hospitals, or coming up with new testing kits. I see generosity being poured out towards strangers in need. And while kindness and creativity and generosity are admirable, I don't know if any of these qualities would necessarily invite persecution the way Jesus describes here. Christ's followers have the opportunity to be persecuted in this subversively inclusive fashion, just as Jesus did. But why exactly was Jesus persecuted? First, he was persecuted for being righteous, perfectly. You know, righteousness is very easy to celebrate when it's sitting over there. But when righteousness comes and sits right beside you, without even saying a word, Righteousness begins to expose our rottenness. You begin to realize your own imperfections and the demand for you to change. Now, we don't experience it maybe quite so overtly, but we either open up to that righteousness and respond in trust and faith, or we try to make ourselves as far away from it as possible because it requires too much from us. We get small experiences of this, When I go out to eat sometimes with friends, uh, and they'll pick a salad for lunch. Meanwhile, my burger and fries arrive on my table, and I'm like, 
make me look so bad. Or maybe someone who's really good at connecting with kids, and I realized, I've, I realized how little patience I often have. That's what righteousness does when it sits beside you. It, it re- makes you realize how much you need God's grace. We either open ourselves to the light of God so that we might find healing, or we want to run from it. Flannery O'Connor is an American uh, essayist in the 20th century, and she wrote the following. She said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you odd. Truth shall make you odd. That oddness that Connor, O'Connor describes is just another word for holy. And what does it mean to be holy? It means to be righteous, to be set apart, to be distinct, to be marching to a, the beat of a different drum. That's what being righteous is. And we can only be righteous when Christ comes into our lives. Secondly, Jesus was persecuted for doing righteousness. Jesus disturbed and subverted the status quo, not by raising attention, not by holding rallies and increased, increasing his online platform, but simply being himself wherever he went. He lived out the gospel. Wherever he went, he did right relationship. Mortimer Arias is an Argentinian missionary who wrote one of the most influential books for my own understanding of what God's kingdom is like. In his book, Announcing the Reign of God, he says the following, the coming of the kingdom means a permanent confrontation of two worlds. The kingdom is a question mark in the midst of established ideas and answers developed by people and societies. Kingdom of God is this question mark. And we as question mark bearers of this, of these odd people walking in the world confront what goes on. Jesus rocked the boat with the kingdom of it, with the, with the kingdom in the healing of a man who was afflicted by a legion of evil spirits. When Jesus healed this man, the evil spirits fled to 2,000 pigs who then rushed down a steep bank and drowned themselves in the sea. But how did the people respond in this story? They told Jesus to go away. Rather than celebrate a man who had become whole, they were more concerned about the economic impact on their town economy. Jesus was upsetting their value system. Can you think of any town people today who may seem a bit too concerned with the value of their investments over the value of their neighbors? Paul was another example. The apostle. He didn't set out to subvert the status quo. In Ephesus, there's a population of about a quarter million people. He found himself in the midst of a riot in Acts 19. He was forced to leave the city. Why? He simply pronounced the good news and people responded. People received Jesus as the leader of their lives. And for many, that meant taking down the idol statues of the goddess Diana, who was the patron goddess of Ephesus, and burning all of their Uh, spiritual books to worship her. Now the city's economy was dependent on the sale of these goods. And so a leader named Demetrius got uh, got the silversmith union to form. And they formed a silversmith super PAC to lobby against Paul and got him thrown out of town because his teaching was affecting their financial interest. Their stock value was dropping not because Paul was intending to subvert the economy, but because people's lives were being changed for the better. 
They were becoming rightly related. Lastly, Jesus, so Jesus was being righteous, was doing righteousness, and now Jesus was persecuted for speaking righteousness. Jesus made these statements that confronted people. He said, follow me to fishermen and tax collectors. It wasn't an invitation. It wasn't, uh, hey, would you consider this option compared to what you're doing right now? He simply walked up to them and gave them a directive, come, follow me. Later on in, in the Gospel of John, we see how he uses the, not the indefinite article A, but the definite article the, for all of these I am statements. He doesn't say, I am a good shepherd. He says, I am the good shepherd. Or, I am a good teacher. He says, I am the good teacher. He says, I am the way, not just a way. In our age of tolerance and uh, political correctness, we may be attempted to soften this blow. But standing on Jesus as the one way into the kingdom, into a truly blessed and happy life, is not about intolerance. It's about righteousness. It's about right relationship. We can be kind and meek and compassionate, but we cannot be unfaithful to the claims that Jesus makes himself about himself. When we begin to follow and trust Jesus as the leader of our lives, we discover this assurance of being included in the most transformative community in the universe, and that's the kingdom of God. And as we follow Jesus and embrace his right, relation, right relatedness in all things, we find that our lives begin to subvert the dominant narratives of our world, of greed, of power, of selfishness. And these are all based on human efforts and institutions. Now, we don't have to be loud about it unless God calls us to and try to play by the same rules. We simply live this alternative lifestyle of oddness in God's kingdom in the world. We simply be and do and speak the righteousness of Christ wherever God leads us. Richard Rohr is a Franciscan contemplative priest. And he reflects on how God uses both great love and great suffering to achieve transformation in our hearts, but also in the world. He says, great love and great suffering bring us back to God. And I believe this is how Jesus himself walked humanity back to God. It's not just a path of resurrection rewards, but a path that now includes death and woundedness. Jesus himself walked humanity back to God in great love and in great suffering. And so he invites us to do the same. Friends, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for, because they are righteous, because they do and speak righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Lord, when we hear these pronouncements, especially this last one, it seems really hard. We want to want this, but I think if we're honest with ourselves, it's really hard to say that. But help us to look at what we have been given as we put our trust in you. 
We, ha- we are included in this most enduring community in the universe. And we are included in this great mission that has existed since the beginning of time to welcome others to experience this right relationship with you, right relationship with themselves, and right relationship with others and the world around us. So God, as we step forward in our week and in our days, may we realize the deep comfort of belonging in your kingdom because of what you have done for us. And because of that, we can go with boldness in great love and in great suffering so that others would know your name and find inclusion in the kingdom as well. We ask these things in the name of your strong and faithful name. Amen.